Somebody made the mistake of asking me about verses that speak of our Lord Jesus being touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And so I thought I would preach two or three Sundays on the subject of the comfort of the saints this week, the comfort promised. But all this reminded me of a very sad incident that took place a couple of months ago. I suppose you could say it's like a rolling disaster. A relatively prominent apologist and philosopher on the internet who had debated doctrine about God and was well read up on the philosophers and all their writings about determinism and free will and so forth and could cite you academic papers written by academicians on all sides of the subject, all of a sudden announced one day that he had deconverted from Christianity, that he no longer had any faith in the Lord Jesus, that he doesn't even believe that Jesus is the Son of God or is a deity at all, that he was confused, misinformed, not to say delusional, but that his claims were not lies, but they were nevertheless not true. He's traced all of this disaster to his divorce that took place two years ago and how he was in deep despair and he sought comfort from God, his father. But he claims he never got any. And he wept and prayed and he went to church and he studied the Scriptures more and more and prayed more and took counsel and never could feel any comfort from God. And so slowly but surely he felt his faith was departing him until now he has no faith at all in the Scriptures. He believes they're beautiful and that they teach glorious things. He just doesn't believe that some or all of it is actually God's Word. And so he has announced his deconversion from the Christian faith. He says he's no longer a Christian, although he still holds firmly to his theistic philosophy and continues to defend it online and so forth. Now this brought to my mind the truth of the fact that it is very dangerous to elevate philosophy as a source of truth over God's Word. In fact, one might say that we really never can know anything's true for certain based on philosophy seeking a rigorous, logical, philosophical knowledge outside of God's revelation and His Word is going to be a dangerous and unfulfilling proposition. Without the Word of God as the source of all knowledge, of all knowledge about God, and all knowledge of the Gospel and His Son and our salvation, then you are on a fool's errand. Because one thing you learn if you're trained as a mathematician and a scientist is in the end, you better have learned this by your late 20s at least, that there isn't any epistemological certainty in this life by reason and factual knowledge and experiment. You know, we can know a lot of things are true mathematically. The problem is that the mathematics doesn't necessarily describe the life we live in. 
it might approximate it, it might give us some good models, but you see this as the modern scientists have descended into this sort of mystical mathematical model, the love of mathematical models that seem to contradict the reality that we live in and bear very little to no relationship to them and have no physical, tangible explanation for why they might be true. But this poor man so elevated his philosophical learning and knowledge and thought and reason that he neglected to exalt God's Word above all those things. Looking back on it, you could see that this was the case in this man's life. Now, the Scriptures, on the other hand, teach us that God comforts us, consoles us, and sympathizes with us as His creatures. This man couldn't get any sympathy from philosophy. And his philosophy shoved aside the primacy of God's Word as the truth revealed by God because he couldn't prove philosophically that it was the truth revealed by God. And so therefore he misses out on the promises of God to comfort us, to console us, to sympathize with us. Now, the Old Testament is full of promises of consolation, compassion, and comfort. The New Testament reveals to us that comfort embodied in the Lord Jesus and transmitted to us by the Holy Ghost living in the hearts of believers. Consider, for example, Psalm 111. We'll read the whole psalm and make a few comments on it. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great. Sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endureth forever. Now notice the immediate appeal to the power of God, to the praise of God, to the works of God, how great they are, and how those who are the Lord's people seek out the works of God because they want to have pleasure in the works of God. And if you approach life without a God to have done all these glorious things, then your life is in a fog and your mind is confused because it stands to reason that there must be an all-powerful God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that everyone really knows there's a God. They just suppress the knowledge of it. And that turns them into foolishness and that strips them of all of the redeeming qualities that one might suppose are found in humanity and they sink into the morass of wickedness and depravity and judgment. His work is honorable and glorious. His righteousness endureth forever. These are the things that endure the power and the works and the righteousness of God as compared to our puny, crummy efforts. He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. So God intends us to remember His wonderful works. They're not trivial things. They're not things that fade away in beauty or in grandeur. They are made to be remembered. We should write them down if they are one-time acts so that we won't forget them. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. 
Now this, of course, is probably inserted at this point in order to counterbalance the presumption that, oh, so great and high God, He didn't take any notice of any of us, does He? No, the Lord is this powerful and this awesome, and yet He is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. He hath showed His people the power of His works, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of His hands are verity and judgment. All His commandments are sure. So you see that God has provided for His people by means of His mighty power. God has made promises to His people which He will never ever forget or forsake or violate. He has shown His people the power of His works that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. You remember Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. See, Jesus was repeating and teaching what the psalmist said. He has showed His people the power of His works that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of His hands are verity and judgment. All His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. Everything God does not only stands fast and true and is worked in truth and justice and all of His commandments are forever. They're sure they can't be overturned or overthrown or undermined by any puny works of men. They're done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverent is His name. Now this, of course, is a reminder of the rescue of the people of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And yet that redemption was itself just a minor example of the redemption which Christ would purchase as the Passover lamb for His people from all their crimes and all their judgments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. We ought to fear such a powerful one, such a glorious one, such an eternal one, such a one as has made promises to His people that He will keep, such a one who has redeemed his people provided for His people and shown by His power that He is a reliable God and one who is gracious and full of compassion nevertheless. Here we see that God's comfort and compassion and grace are seen in His mighty power and in His righteousness. And this, of course, is unstated, but it's implied that all this is in contrast to the false pagan gods, the false idols who have no power, who have done no works, who if one trusts in them, one is foolish because it is a nullity at best and at worst it's a worship of the devil. And they have no power and they have no compassion. You know, go back and read the pagan Greek writings and you see that the gods are not very propitious and they're not very nice and they're not very moral and they're not ethical and they're not consistent and they're always fighting against each other and poor man just sits around waiting to be trampled on and trying to come up with a philosophy that can make life livable 
And so we can get all the way to the end and die and be done with it. The power prevails for us in our God's case. The power prevails for His people and His covenants with His people are upheld. He is not a mendacious and dishonest God. Now in Psalm 103 is the passage that we know best from the Old Testament about the subject of the kindness of God to His people. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. Now there is an assertion of the justice of God which He will render for all that are oppressed. And in the end, of course, we know that while in this life oftentimes the oppressed seem to be crushed, that one day God will set all things right in His own good time. You remember Jesus talked about that in John chapter 5. He has the power to raise from the dead His people unto everlasting life, and one day He will. And that's when everything will be set right for His oppressed people. And it will be done in righteousness. It will be done in justice. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Here is the statement of Psalm 103 about God's kindness towards us, His giving us good gifts, being slow to anger, being plenteous in mercy, not giving us the judgment that we deserve, but showing mercy and being good to us. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward us, toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Now here is the forgiving of God's people by Himself that He takes away our sin, that He doesn't deal with us as we deserve according to our sin. He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Well, who wants to collect that paycheck? That's what you've earned and that's what you'll get unless God has mercy on you. But He's not dealt with His people after their sins are rewarded us according to our iniquities. He's taken those sins away and cast them into the depths of the sea. And as far as the east is from the west, so hath He removed our transgressions from us. Now the psalmist doesn't explain just how God's going to do all this, does He? That's to be revealed later in other texts. But He is forgiving of His people. But then notice at verse 13, Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Now God knows everything. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that he knows that we're weak and that we are made of dust and that we grow and die, that we're subject to being cut down by sickness or accidents or murderers. And he knows what our weaknesses are compared to His strength, which is everlasting and eternal and infinite. And He remembers that we're dust. Like a father pities his children, a father knows that his children are weak and need his protection and support and help. The Lord pities them that fear Him. 
maybe one of the big problems we have in our society of fatherlessness is that the young people don't have a sense that their father pities his children or that they have a father who will defend them or protect them or provide for them and they're out there like homeless people as it was as far as having a father is concerned. But you know, if you are one of the Lord's people, if you've trusted in Christ, then you do have a Father who pities you and a Father that knows what you're like and remembers your frailty and your helplessness and your weakness. Now, you know, in our world, wicked men take advantage of weakness, don't they? They don't protect the weak. They don't protect the helpless. They exploit the helplessness for their own greed, for money and for power, but not so God. God already has all the power and He has all the money. He has all of creation that He owns and He treats His people differently from the way wicked men in our world treat the weak and the helpless. He does not exploit that. He rather has pity on us and forgives us and promises us comfort and help. Note carefully how God's comfort upon us is principally seen in His forgiveness of our sins. Here in this text that we just read, there is this notion that the principal thing we are in need of is to be protected from our sin, to be rescued from our sin to be spared the righteous judgment for our sin. And how can we have a God with all this power and all this justice and all this righteousness? I mean, that puts us in a bad shape because we're sinners. We've sinned against God. We've not loved Him like we should. We've not obeyed His commandments. We've rebelled against Him. And yet, those who call upon Him, you see, He forgives that. He has pity on us and He has compassion on us and has grace towards us. And so, God's comfort is principally seen in His forgiveness of our sins. And we find this theme developed in several other Old Testament passages. For example, in Isaiah 40 that we read this morning, consider verses 1, 2, and 5. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. God is crying out, that His people will be comforted. How are they going to be comforted? He's comforting them. He's going to comfort them. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So here we see that the comfort of God flows from the pardon of our iniquity, the staying of the hand of wrath and of justice, From God, usually through human means, the wicked, the marauders, the invaders, the criminals, the thugs, and the government officials that tyrannize the people. But notice that the comfort is linked very closely with the pardoning of the Lord's people's sin and the promise that judgment is passed. And this is the comfort that's announced in Isaiah 40. And it's announced prophetically because the means by which it is to be carried out have not yet been revealed. That is, revealed in the Word, yes, in an obscure way sometimes, and 
in a way in which people of those days couldn't grasp, but it is to be revealed concretely someday in the future. And there is this interlude here about the Lord making things right, making things straight, making things clear. And then at verse 5, "...and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together." For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This is a promise that the comfort and the pardoning of iniquity and all these glorious things will be revealed as the glory of God and all flesh shall see it together. And the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. That is, it's a promise that He has made that He will not withdraw or fail to perform. Now this morning we read Luke's Gospel, the third chapter at verse 6, where the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ties this promise in Isaiah 40 to the message of John the Baptist, of the coming of the Blessed One, that is the coming of Messiah. And if you remember, it says here, as it is written, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made smooth. And then look at what it says at verse 6. And all flesh shall see what? In Isaiah 40 it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. But in Luke 3 at verse 6 it says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God, by which is identified that the glory of God discussed in Isaiah chapter 40, that all flesh shall see, and that God has promised by His spoken word that that glory is in fact the salvation that God has promised, and that will be revealed, and that is tied together with the comfort of having one's iniquity pardoned. And so the writer Luke quotes in the story of John the Baptist this text, and he quakes the glory of the Lord, the comfort of the Lord's people, the pardoning of iniquity with salvation. And it is a salvation that is to be personified in our blessed Savior. But even more explicit, We find in Micah chapter 7 these glorious words. Verse 18, Who is God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Now here in this glorious text, we see that God will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is just a stronger revelation of what was revealed in Psalm 103, isn't it? There's no God like our God that pardons iniquity, that passes by the transgressions of His people, that doesn't stay angry with us because He delights in mercy. 
He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. There is a pardon, a passing by, a delight in mercy, a having compassion upon us. And this compassion is principally the pardoning of our iniquities, the subduing of our iniquities, the taking away of our sins by our God. And there is no other God like unto our God that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of His people. This is the promise of the compassion of God that most gloriously and most importantly, it is the pardoning of the sins of His people. Now we preached on Christmas Day the greatness of the gift of our Savior who takes away our sin, didn't we? Perhaps you remember that. The reason that that is a great topic for Christmas Day is that our sins are great. And in the revelation of the angels to Joseph and the shepherds, He promised a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He promised Jesus because He will take away the sin of His people. But our sins are great. And we sin as lost people in everything we do, as we discussed. We hardly know how great our sins are. You know, we sit around comparing ourselves with other people and we look at those people down the road and say, well, those people are really bad people. And we take on the role of the Pharisee. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like those other people, those tax collectors. We don't hardly have a proper view of our sin. And it's very interesting in discussing these matters on social media how oblivious Christians are to the greatness of their sin. And when you boil down the way they talk about it, it's like we just made a few tragic mistakes, but God will forgive us of those, and He will. He'll forgive us of all our sin if we put our trust in Jesus. But they really don't seem to have a real view of how desperate our situation was. That we sin constantly, even in times when we don't even recognize our sin. We hardly know how great our sin is, but God knows. He knows them all. And that, you see, is the problem. Is that we go about our life oblivious to the fact that God knows our sin, even the vast majority of which we probably are unaware of because we are so blinded and ignorant and so lost in our sin. God knows everything and He knows all of our sin. And so in order to grasp the comfort of God, you have to grasp that it is the comfort that is the greatest promised by God in the Old Testament times, that is the pardoning of our sin. The subduing of our iniquities. The taking away from His sight of our crimes. And if we understood our sin, then we would understand how what God has promised is a great comfort to us. But we focus on smaller, minor troubles, don't we? We focus on those and we forget. We forget the great comfort that is the taking away of our sin. You think back to that poor apostate philosopher who claims God's comfort never came to him. And when he said that, I just couldn't help but think 
He doesn't grasp his own sin. And he said something later that put me on to that. It was pretty clear that he was so wrapped up in his philosophy of God that he minimized the revelation of God's Word, which is where you will find the greatness of our sin. Uh, You really won't find that in his philosophy so much. And so somehow he didn't grasp the horrible nature of his sin or of our sin, any of us. And therefore, he didn't have that joy of having it taken away by God. And therefore, he didn't detect a comfort from God that he thought he was entitled to as God's son. It's like he just wrote off the comfort of God in taking away his sin, in providing him with a Savior to redeem him from his sin. That's not the comfort he had in mind or the comfort he was even aware of. And I believe it's because he was not fully conscious of his sin because he spent so much time in his philosophy and not enough in grasping the evil and wickedness and malignity of our sin against a holy and righteous Creator God. And so now he rejects the one who was sent by God to comfort poor sinners. See, in Christ is our comfort because He is the one that takes away our sin. He's the one that subdues our iniquities. He's the means by which God's promise of comfort in taking away the sin of His people is fulfilled. This man now not recognizing the comfort of God in the taking away of his sin, has rejected the very one who personifies that comfort. This man is so learned, and yet he never learnt the wisdom and faith, did he? For example, of old Simeon. We read of him when Jesus was taken to the temple, Luke chapter 2 at verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, listen, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Now here's a man who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. That comfort, that satisfaction, Long promised of old, the one who would rescue his people from their sin, the one who would affect the promises of comfort from God about the pardoning of iniquity. This man is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he comes by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Now see that here is a man who was probably not nearly as learned as this poor philosopher person who's walked away from the Lord. But Simeon had learned 
what all the philosophy in the world will not teach a man. That the great comfort of God is the blessed Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. And that in Christ is all the consolation that anyone could ever hope for or need in this world. The Lord Jesus is the comfort revealed. Well, that'll be the topic for next Lord's Day. How glorious that God should reveal to us that comfort in the incarnation of God the Son. That our comfort should be embodied, literally personified, in our Lord Jesus, who is God of very God, and God manifest in the flesh. That the comfort that God promises that He will take away our sin, pardon our iniquity, subdue all of our crimes, that great comfort then is embodied in the Lord Jesus Himself, who is the one that executes the promise of the comfort of God. And at this table... We celebrate how Jesus took away our sins and brought in that long-promised comfort for poor sinners. God made promises that He would comfort His people. And in the Lord Jesus are the promises fulfilled. And by faith we see in the bread and in the wine the means by which Christ Jesus executed that comfort for us when He died on the cross, when His body was torn for us, when His blood was shed and His life poured out in our place for our crimes, that God might be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. And around this table we, we celebrate what Jesus did and we acknowledge that in His real body and blood, not these symbols, but what they point to, is all of our hope, our life, our joy, and in fact is all of our comfort to put a fine point to it. In Christ Jesus' body and blood, sacrificed for us, we find the comfort that God promised all those years ago that He would take away the iniquities of His people because He delights in mercy, and showing compassion upon us. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table, for the bread that pictures the body, that pictures the body that was broken for us. So God our Father, we rejoice in the comfort that we have in Christ. Help us to value it. Help us not to denigrate it. Help us not to be looking for other comforts and forget the great comfort. Help us to remember that verse in Romans chapter 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And so we exalt the body of Christ broken for us on the cross, mutilated for us as a sacrifice, riven with nails and thorns and a spear and lashes, and mocked and treated as nothing by the wicked there, but loved by your people. Lord, we love the Lord Jesus as we partake of this bread. Help us to know what it stands for and how through His body sacrificed You have comforted us by taking away our sin. Now we don't have to face wrath and judgment 
anymore. But rather we look for the resurrection of the body just like He raised up Jesus from the grave all those years ago. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it. And He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 93 in the black book. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me He bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. Number 93, majestic sweetness, sits enthroned. Number 93.